So Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I'll bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promised <clears throat> the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's, uh, let's begin this time with prayer. Let's pray. God, you alone are the gracious one, the one that has true mercy, the one that loves us and has called us according to your purpose. And so, Father, as we just pause and hear your word, I pray that you would open our hearts to see, that you'd open our ears, Lord, to truly hear and to be changed. Lord, that your word and your spirit would be the force that encourages us to press on, to persevere, to endure all that we have set before us for the hope that there is in Christ. And I pray, Lord, you'd really give me great understanding and teach me, Lord, how to um, spell it out simply, Lord, so that we can take it and run with it for your sake. So please, Lord, make us attentive to your word now in Jesus. Amen. Morning, Chapel Street. G'day to those online and those that uh, might listen later on the pod. Um, it's exciting to be back in Hebrews. I thank you for your prayers uh, for me and my back. I'm beginning to get somewhere, but I for them. Back in Hebrews, and uh, you will recall, because I said it many times, uh, that Hebrews is a book about the supremacy of Christ. It's about his supreme nature and his supreme actions in everything he has done and will do. Uh, that it's a book that has warnings in it, and we've heard some of the warnings already. But it's also a book that is about persevering. It's a book that in a way gives us a bit of a, a push or a kick or a shove or an exhortation or encouragement to continue in the faith. That's what perseverance is. Long suffering. That's another word or two words for persevering. Enduring. 
And today's passage might not look like it, but it's a passage that is about persevering and enduring. But in order to understand this passage, we need to kind of link it back to the passage that we looked at last time. Now, fortunately for you, I can remember that, even if you can't. But it's that passage in Hebrews where the writer rebukes the people that receive the letter for not necessarily maturing. He tells them that by now they actually ought to be maturing to the point where they are in fact able to teach. But that there are people that don't necessarily build on the foundation of the gospel, the first words that people heard, the basic principles or elementary doctrines, as is sometimes translated, and grow on to maturity. And then in that text comes this shuddering realization that there are people that claim to know Christ that have tasted something of him, something of the Holy Spirit, something of the word, something of the fellowship that in fact fall away. That don't know Christ at all in reality. And so going on to maturity is a sign of Christianity living, as it were, Christ living in us, us living in Christ of growth, especially when persecution comes continuing, persevering. And at the end of that section, just have a look with me in chapter 6 again, verse 12, the writer who says that he feels that the receivers of um, this letter are probably on the right track, but he says he desires that each one of them show this, verse 11, show the same earnestness, listen, to have full assurance of hope until the end. That's the goal of this passage, of this part of the scripture, is that his desire is that they would continue to the end with full assurance of hope. And that's what we need, right? <laughs> we need to keep going. We need to keep pursuing Christ, as it were, with full assurance of hope. And then he ends that little section by saying, but be imitators of other people. Be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. And I mentioned that it would be good to inherit godly people that you might know. To inherit them, to, to uh, um, imitate them, sorry. And I mentioned it would be good to imitate Christ. But then the writer gives us someone else to imitate in the text that we've got to today. He provides someone else, and that's Abraham. And look, perhaps uh, at first reading, you look at this text like me, and you think, wow, this looks quite complex. It is. It's a difficult passage just to kind of pull apart a little bit. We can get bogged down in certain areas. But I'm going to try and get us through this. And if you take nothing else away from today, I want you to take these three things, because this is basically what the passage has just remember three things and you'll see them as we go through the first thing is that abraham waited patiently and he received the promises he waited patiently and he received the promises the second thing is that when god makes a promise he keeps it doesn't fail he fulfills 
And the third thing is that because of these things, because of these realities that God keeps his promise and that Abraham waits patiently, we can have what the word here says, strong encouragement to hold fast to our hope. So this is a good picture here, a good person to in, in, keep getting the wrong word, to imitate, isn't it? Abraham's a good person to imitate, to hold fast to our hope, literally to persevere. Now, I'm sure that most of you know who Abraham is, but in the unlikely event that one of you at least doesn't, I'll mention who he is. He's a character in the Bible, obviously, in the Old Testament. He's uh, around 4,000 years before Christ, so 6,000 years ago. So we're being asked to imitate a man from 6,000 years ago, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, and he isn't a man who's looking for God. He's a pagan. He doesn't know God doesn't worship God, doesn't have a clue really who God is. And God calls him out of that situation and through a covenant or a series of promises makes an oath to Abraham. He says to him in different ways in Genesis, you're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, Abraham. I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to give you an heir. And then I'm going to give you blessings. I promise you these things. That's the covenant. I promise you, you will get these things. And ultimately, you will inherit the promised land. Now, the promised land, which is Canaan, and in uh, this time is, is Israel, the place that is Israel, is called the promised land because it's a promised land it's part of the promise that's why we call it that and uh, you may not know that the likelihood under normal circumstances of Abraham getting any of these things is next to none uh, Hebrews in in chapter 11 will go on to say that at this point Abraham is as good as dead he's almost a hundred years old bit late to be starting a family at the age of 100. He hasn't got any children. And more than that, his wife is barren. She cannot have children at all. It seemed unlikely. But we know that in the face of unlikeliness, when God makes a promise, in this case, Abraham trusts him. Against all the odds, right? Abraham trusts God. He believes God. And through that, by the way, the word tells us that it is credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. That's how we receive justification by faith, by trusting the promises of God. He believed, he trusted, he waited patiently. And listen, the promise of the son and the heir came true didn't it isaac was born but do you know how long it took 25 years did you know that 25 years of waiting patiently now i know there was a kind of segue when perhaps abraham didn't trust god and listened as it were to the world through sarah god was patient with him 
and he continued. Took 25 years. And not long after that, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, if it was me at that point, at the age of 100 plus, and having waited for 25 years, if God then said, I want you to sacrifice your son, I think I'd probably go, no, hang on a second. <laughs> We've got this far. Your promises have been pretty good, but this one makes no sense. Let's not do that, God. That's just a crazy idea. But no, he trusts him again. And God saves Isaac, as it were, back from the dead without actually dying. He inter intervenes in that situation and sees once again that Abraham trusts him. And in fact, the, the text that's in here, surely I will bless you and multiply you, refers back to just after that time. So it's a kind of ripple and a remembrance of the promises. And you might say to me, yes, but he didn't inherit the land. And I want to say to you, yes and no. <laughs> Because, yes, he didn't literally inherit the land that was promised, the uh, land of Canaan. He was forced to sojourn in it for a while as a foreigner with his son and with Jacob. But he didn't literally inherit it. But, yes, he did inherit it in the sense that he got the city of God. And, again, if we are allowed to go on long enough in God's grace, we get to Hebrews 11, we'll see how that fits together, how the promise is fulfilled in that ultimately. But what I want you to know is that Abraham so believed God that he actually bought a plot of land, even though he didn't inherit it. He said, well, God is going to put me in this land. So I'm going to get a plot of land so that I can bury my wife. And there's this remarkable deal that goes on with the, the people group there and, uh, and purchases it. And he buries Sarah there. And ultimately, he's buried there. Ultimately, Jacob and Joseph are buried there. It's an amazing concept, isn't it? It's 400 plus years later that they get buried. But you see the idea there. My wife is dying. She's died. I'm going to die. I know God said I'd get this land, so I'm going to put myself there. There's a kind of sense of trust in that. There's a beautiful foreseeing, right? looking forward in that that I think we should hang on to. So there's our example of who to imitate, this patient man who waits and trusts in the hope and trusts in the promises. And the second thing there, verse 16, if you'll just um, look at it as I read it again, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And it's a simple point I want to make here, and it's the one I've already made. When God gives a promise, he keeps it. And we know that he keeps it because we can see history, but here we know that he keeps it because he makes an oath. He, make, he swears by something and when you go to court i don't know if it still happens these days i haven't been to court lately uh, as an accused or a witness um you are at least traditionally you're asked to swear on the bible by almighty god to swear that you will keep to the truth by swearing to something greater than you 
Well, God doesn't have anything greater than him. That's what the text says. So he swears by himself, his own character, his own goodness, his own truth. He makes a promise or he gives a promise to Abraham. And I want to be really clear here. He does not make a deal with Abraham. The covenant promise giving God is not saying, look, Abraham, if you do this, I'll do that. You keep your side of the deal. I'll keep my mind, my, my side. And he doesn't do that because he knows that what humankind will fail. But also if humankind didn't fail, then God wouldn't get all the glory. <laughs> And that's what this is ultimately all about. So he does what we call a unilateral promise. He makes a sacrifice. All very complex. We won't go through it all now. But if you want to know more, chat to me afterwards for sure. We can look at it. But he does it, as it were, from his side. He says, this is how it's going to be. This is how the promises are true. And I make it in my name. What I want us to know is that, as I said already, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. In the passage of 25 years, you might forget that or stop believing that. And there are promises for us, which I'm coming to, but you have a life of X years. Dave said already, it's a vapor. But for us, it can be 70 plus years. It might seem like God isn't keeping his promises at times, but here we can see he does because he makes them with an oath. And if God makes a promise with an oath and then doesn't keep it, he's a liar. The text says he isn't. And we know from history that that's true. And the third thing I want to look at is from verse 17 and 18. I'll just read that 17 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, listen, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What the writer is saying there is, when you look at this picture of promises that are kept, and the power of God and his oath, and the fact that he can't lie, and how Abraham actually did wait patiently, we should be able to have some kind of power to persevere. Strong encouragement to hold fast. That's what that means, to keep going. I want you to note that it's not hoping for something in Christianity. Right? That's what the world does. It hopes for something. I hope tomorrow's going to be a lovely day, right? Hope tomorrow's going to be warm. I hope tonight's not going to be quite so cold. That's hoping for something. In Christianity, it's about hoping in someone, putting that true hope, those promises that were given in someone. But that someone's got to be a good someone, right? To keep the promises. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to work. And that someone, of course, is God. But did you notice that we have a hope there that's set before us? Look at that text again in 18, second half. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's talking to the, the people in, in Israel at this time. He's talking to us, right? He's not talking to Abraham, just to be clear about us 
We have a hope set before us. I want to just uh, remind us of some of that hope for a moment. But first, I need to tell us that the promise that we have in Christ is actually the same promise that Abraham has. Not that we'll get a son and heir, although thinking about it, we have got a son and heir, haven't we? Because with no Abraham, there's no Isaac. No promise, there's no Isaac. With no Isaac, there's no Jesus. Think about that for a second. This is a plan that God has. And we're in this plan. This is this is our plan. Not our plan, we're in the plan. Not just Abraham's. The promise is for us as well. And this might sound contentious, but we're the children of Abraham. Not because we're of the same ethnic flesh group, as it were. Israelites, but because we are actually the children of the promise. We were looking at that recently in the Bible study. This came to me. In the Bible, this is Paul in Romans 9. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. The promises haven't failed. The word hasn't failed. The law hasn't failed. It's not as though the word of God, the promises haven't failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and then he quotes the text that uh, the Lord gives in terms of the promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, says Paul, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it is the children of the promise that are counted as offspring that's us do you know that we're one of the nations right australia we're one of the nations the people of god not not the whole of australia just to be clear that are the children of the promise so the promise was given to abraham it's for us but there's more because Abraham, as it were, put his faith and his trust in Christ without necessarily knowing Christ, without necessarily knowing the gospel. He trusted God right, against all odds, and it was credited to, to him as righteousness. And we exist after Christ on the earth. And Christ has fulfilled a massive chunk of the rest of the plan. There's more to come, but he's fulfilled a colossal chunk of it. And that chunk is the gospel. Incarnated as a man, the creator, died for the sin of the world, fulfilled the law, upheld the righteousness of God, vindicated his glorious character and nature. And because of that, we get to kind of look back to Abraham and see this promise enacted and being fulfilled. We know eventually the people of Israel did go to the promised land. We know what happened thereafter. We know where we are now with that history. But we also know that Christ has come, fulfilled the law, and has been resurrected and ascended and is coming again. See, the promise goes on, doesn't it? So I have a quick question to us before we look at some of those um, blessings, hopes that we have in the promise, is to ask you the question, 
Are you holding fast to the hope? Just to reflect on your life for a second. Are you holding fast to the hope that's set before you? What's your life like? What's Monday like? You might well be holding fast to it right now. Amen, Sam, you might say. What's tomorrow look like for you? Will you be holding fast tomorrow? Well, let me just remind you of the hope. Same promises as Abraham. We're in a different time. The plan is unfolding. It's continuing. God doesn't have 10 plans. It's one plan. Doesn't need more than one. His plan's perfect. Since before he created, this was his plan. And we have hope because of it, because of the promise. You know what one of the hopes is? That we'll see Jesus Christ revealed. What an amazing hope. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully. Not partially, not now and again. Set it hope, your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus Christ is coming and you're going to be saved. There's grace, there's forgiveness, there's mercy if you're in Christ, if you follow him, if you know him. So set your hope on that reality. When try, Jesus Christ is revealed, I'm going to be forgiven. Amen. That's the hope we ought to set our lives on, isn't it? There's a hope of righteousness in Galatians. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I don't feel very righteous. <laughs> I'm declared righteous. I know that in Christ. One day we will be righteous. Colossians, Paul tells us to continue in the faith. There's a, there's a picture of persevering again. Continue in the faith. Stable. Steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Sometimes you might be tempted, you know, you get up in the morning and things are hard and you might think, do I really know God? You might even think, is there a God? Is, is, is any of this stuff real? I don't know if you've ever had that thought. I have sometimes, I think. Is any of this real? God's grace has brought me back to, to life there. Stable, steadfast. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. There's hope for us in salvation. Since we belong to the day, that's the day when he comes, let us be sober. This is serious stuff. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Amen? What a great helmet to be wearing. I'm going to be saved when he appears. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, this is Titus, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Listen, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us. Are you waiting for God? Are you waiting for Jesus Christ and his appearing? It's a blessed hope. And at the end of that, actually, that section, 
Titus says, so that being justified by Christ's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen, that's the promised land. That's the promise. That's the that's the promise that Abraham got. There's a new heaven, isn't there? There's a new earth. Man dwells with God. God dwells with man. The bride of Christ comes out out of heaven, down into into the new creation. That's the promised land. And don't think that Abraham didn't know that. He did. Hebrews tells us that later. So we read this passage and we think, wow, that's amazing. Abraham waited patiently. We're, we're trying to understand this so that we have assurance, full assurance until the end of, of our, in our hope in Christ. And so we think, wow, that's great. I have that. Not a problem. But there's a stinger in this text. And you might not have seen it. If, you, if you're reading along, just jump back to verse 18 with me, please. The writer says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that's set before us. The stinger in the tale is it's about the people that have fled for refuge. The picture of refuge here is quite common. In the Old Testament, especially, when you go to a place for refuge, you go to another city. That's the imagery behind it. You go to a city that's got walls that you're safe behind. You have to go to that place. And the implication here is that the place of refuge is what? It's Christ. The king of the kingdom. The city of God. The city of our God. And so these things do not pertain to people who do not go to Christ for refuge. This is so important. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you haven't come to him, begged for mercy, and then began this journey of persevering, then you haven't sought him for refuge. And ultimately, the promise is not for you. Don't think for a moment that you'll somehow be able to get into this city, this promised land, just by attending church. It's not how it works. Don't think for a moment that you'll be able to get into this promised city, this promised land, just by going to a Bible study. It's not how it works. The preceding verses in the text that we're studying are all about whether or not you're maturing in Christ. And the evidence that you're maturing is that you will hold fast. You will persevere no matter how hard it is. You won't fall away. And really, he's saying to them, are you Christian? Do you really know Christ? You know, there's a bunch of promises. Remember Abraham? He waited patiently. He trusted God. Look what happened. God fulfilled his promises. What about you? Are you maturing? Where is your endurance? Where is your perseverance in the faith? It's only for those that have fled for refuge. And so I want to say to you, if you don't know Christ today, 
think about that if you don't know him if you don't really have a relationship a living relationship with christ where you're connected to him spiritually by his power by you coming and saying please i want to take refuge here what does it say come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden right this is where you get rest from come take refuge in me if you don't have that then you can have that by doing that sincerely I spoke to someone in the week who I talked about reading the Bible and they told me that they um, have a Bible uh, next to the bed as well I said wow that's great and I said do you read it and they said well not really and I said you're a Christian and they said yes and I wasn't there to judge anyone obviously but it did cause me to think well it isn't a terribly good sign but there are plenty of people that read the Bible that don't know Christ as well, right? As I've said, you can come to Christ. You beg him for mercy. And you know what you get? You get a book and a spirit. But when you read this, you get blessed assurance, right? Isn't that what we're after here? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine you get blessed assurance because you fled for refuge and so the text tells us that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to keep going to press on to wait patiently 25 years you know the promise that was given to abraham back in the beginning then the people did inherit the land you know how long they waited over 400 years they didn't forget the promise by the way they got taken away to egypt fantastic story their miracles the lord sent a type of christ that's the person of moses to redeem them went into the wilderness that whole generation got wiped out they rebelled they repented they rebelled they repented story of israel rebelled repent all the way eventually they got into there not even moses got in not even moses got in he got to look into it from the 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 hilltop look over the hill and look into the promised land but he died and he was buried outside interestingly 400 years it's been six thousand. think about that since abraham and we're still waiting the christ has come hasn't he we know christ we know the power of the resurrection but we're still waiting for him to come again do you believe it are you hoping in it and he gives us this beautiful metaphor just to metaphors are fantastic aren't they they just give you a different perspective that's what he's trying to do here just to kind of shift things a little bit so that you can work out where you sit in this predicament we'll close with this just at the end verse 19 the writer says listen we have this sure and steady anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
He's going to spend the next chapter talking about Melchizedek. So I won't dwell on it now. It's a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is? Well, it says hope. Not for something, but in someone, right? Who is the promise keeper? Right? That, that's what this is. That's what this text is for. So let's think about it. Are we maturing? I'm not saying we ought to walk around like we're sort of demigods, so to speak, perfect in every way. That's not going to happen, although we should aspire to the holiness of God. We should be obedient children. We've been adopted into his family, so we ought to obey the Father. But are we casting our hope in Christ? Are we found in him? What is our daily life like? What are you like when you're on your own? I think that's the greatest measure, right? What am I like when I'm on my, how do I think? What bad thoughts do I have? How do I deal with them? Do I take them captive for Christ? Right? That's such a brilliant measure, right? When you're on your own, what's your prayer time like on your own? Because that's where our hope needs to exist in Christ, in his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Lo, I'm with you always. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. That hope, as it were, has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. That's the imagery of simply uh, going into the Holy of Holies where Christ has gone as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek because he's not a Levite. He's gone as the priest, the great high priest, the one and only great high priest. And the high priest's function is to take the sacrificial offering. And he's gone in as that sacrificial offering, but he didn't need to cleanse himself like the high priest of the Old Testament because he was pure himself. He didn't have any sin. So he goes in and he takes the sacrifice. And who's the sacrifice? Him. He's gone in before us. He's the forerunner, right? He's done the work. And our hope takes us in there because we hope in Christ. We follow him. We go through the same veil, as it were. Hebrews will tell us elsewhere that it is his flesh, that veil. We walk through into the Holy of Holies through him, so to speak. But I love the image that he gives us of the anchor. We have this as a sure, a certain, and steadfast, immovable anchor of the soul. Your body will fall apart unless the Lord returns. It will. It will, by gravity and sin and death, wend its way into the ground. That's what will happen. But your soul is quite different, isn't it? They don't bury souls. They don't go into the grave. They're immortal, eternal, I should say. And we have a sure and steadfast anchor of that soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. And I find this uh, metaphor of an anchor very useful. I was thinking about it. My father was a, a captain in the Navy and made me think of all sorts of lovely memories. And he taught me various things. I won't go on about those. But one of the things I did learn was to see an anchor with him being dropped off the bow of one of his ships and then raised and the, the, the chain links with this big, without exaggerating. I couldn't lift a single one. Great big anchor, big ship. Need a big anchor for a big ship, right? <laughs> Makes sense. 
And I was super excited about that, right? Seeing an anchor dropped, I, I moved a lever and this great big thing went down and eventually it, it snagged on the floor of the ocean bed and the ship stayed there. I'm not saying it didn't move because the winds came and the currents came, right? That's what happens on, on the ocean as, as anywhere, anywhere else where there's water, right? And the ship moved, right? Spun around. But you know what? The bow of the ship stayed where the anchor was, didn't it? That's what, that's what anchors do. They hold the front of the ship to that point. It doesn't matter what winds come and what currents come. It didn't move. In fact, my father told me that when the, um, even though these were huge links, when the links in the chain of this anchor gets sort of pulled and stressed, you know what happens? The anchor digs deeper. That's it's designed by the way it's built to dig deeper into the ground to hold it fast, steadfast, immovable, sure. Something certain and wonderful. And in our lives, we will have winds that will change us. We will have currents that hurt us. I was thinking of Matt earlier as we were praying for him. He's, he's experienced a terrible time lately with stress. Heather with her ailments, Nobby. Other people here that are suffering in different ways. Maybe you're suffering with doubt. Maybe you're suffering with temptation. Where's your anchor? In the world, that's not going to hold you fast, is it? It's going to, you're going to drift. You're back to drifting. Chapter 3 of, of Hebrews. Where's your anchor? Where's the anchor of your soul? Is it in the hope that God fulfills his promises? That's where Abraham's was. I love that. The storms of life will come. And I want to say to you, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix the hope as your anchor. You're outside the port that is the, if you will, is the promised land think of it that way you're outside the port that is the promised land waiting to be called in are you going to drift away in the ocean or are you going to hold fast with that anchor of hope the anchor of your soul don't drift in the world don't drift to despair don't drift to hopelessness that's my mother uh, situation when i speak to her she'll say often what what was the point what was the point of this life? She's not a Christian. You know, I try to tell her. It's about the glory of God. It's about knowing who Christ is and coming to Christ. And she doesn't get it. And all she has with respect to my own mother, my love, is hopelessness. Something less than hope. No anchor. Just drifting out to the deep ocean. So imitate Abraham. Yeah, that's the example we're given. Imitate Abraham. Remember where your hope is in Christ. Fix your eyes on him. Fix the front of your ship, your life, the direction you're going to go on him. Remember that God will fulfill every single promise. Amen? Every promise. It's not one. Oh, I forgot one. No, every single one. 
He will come again. We will see him. We will know him. Because as the word says, he who calls you is faithful and will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are a promise-giving God and a promise-keeping God. Father, I thank you that since before the foundation of the world, you, you had a plan. And that at times, Lord, if we're honest, it looks like the plan fails. When I see your son on the cross, it looks like failure, and yet it isn't. It's a fulfillment of promises. Father, I pray that um, if there be any one of us here that is not, as it were, going on to maturity, struggling with faith, persevering in the faith, fighting for the hope that's set before us, then I pray, Lord, you would call them back, call them into perhaps relationship with you. And Lord, for the rest of us who do know you, I pray that you would continue your work of maturing in us, that your word wouldn't just be something we hear and say, yes, I've heard that before, but yes, what a beautiful promise and a beautiful truth and a balm to my soul. And Lord, that you would teach us in this day and tomorrow to hold fast to that hope, that anchor of our soul for your sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.